Hi, I'm Laurel Simmons of The Right Club. If you missed part one of our December 2023 national event with our panel of experts on the impact of changing short-term rental regulations, go listen to it now. We are continuing the conversation here in part two with Christopher McAvoy, who is a partner in Leap Accounting, Spencer Giles and Ashley Antidormi of Stalux Properties, who are owner-operators of short-term rentals across Canada, and Andrew Chibata of Caveat uh, LLP, who provides paralegal services to real estate investors. Welcome to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping you, the real estate investor, advance to the next level. And now let's join this week's hosts and share ways for you to customize your life. But let's talk a little bit about insurance, because that's always been, I think, to me, a really interesting question. So if you have, you know, if you have your own home, you have, you're going to have home insurance. Of course you are going to have house insurance. If you're a tenant, please, I hope your tenants have a tenant insurance, because that's really important. Uh, But short-term rental, what kind of insurance is available? What kind of insurance do you use for the for short-term rentals? Uh, I can take this one. So a, a, a lot of them, the, the policies that we have are commercial grade. A lot of the municipalities actually require you to have a minimum, usually it's $2 million of liability. And we highly recommend in that commercial policy that you get some sort of loss of income involved in there because there's tons of things that can happen. And as we know, short-term rentals, are very versatile. You know, you might have three different reservations in one week. And let's say, you know, heaven forbids you get a flood or something happens to the house where you can't rent it out to the next guest. Not only would that be covered by your actual insurance, but you could also potentially have that loss of income come back as well. And then it goes without saying the liability itself, you're now in the hospitality industry, you're dealing with multiple guests. Like you have to let your insurance provider know that you're doing this you know, the cost of your policy will be more likely double, if not more, but it is definitely worth it every single time. I mean, you do not want to lie to your your insurance agent in that regard. So big note on that. Right. I I can imagine. And are these policies really expensive? I don't know short-term rep, so I don't know. It kind of depends on obviously where the house is, how big it is, all that stuff. But just speaking from experience, I think we paid a little over $200 a month. And they can be up as high as four. It really depends on the size of the house, the amount of potential liability there is, the amount of amenities that you have. I mean, it all factors into that as well. So you really do have to know your numbers before you get into short-term rentals. Because two or $400 a month is a pretty sizable expense. And you are going to be charged that two or $400 a month, whether you have people there are not, right? Because that's the way insurance works. Yes. Okay. All right. What do you think? Better to stay out of the bigger cities or to go into the smaller areas? I know we touched up touch on this a little bit, but what are the small what is it like to go into the smaller areas? I don't know, in Ontario, I, I off the top of my head, I'm thinking Stratford or well, maybe that's not a good example because of all the tourism there. Well, maybe it is. Like smaller cities, Kingston, I think, has been in the news lately about short-term rentals. There's many municipalities that aren't Toronto and Ottawa and Hamilton. You know, there's many of them. So 
What are your thoughts about that? I know, Andrew, you're pretty much out of Ontario. You're out west now. Yeah, yeah. completely. And completely. I'm almost a thought, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the thing. It's, I'm waiting for people to realize the for the scramble of Africa again, because there's a lot of uh, short-term rentals out there now, too. A lot inside Ethiopia, a lot inside South America, et cetera, and it's doing really well. And then also Alberta, that type of thing. I know I have a client who has a, a short-term rental in Oromocto, New Brunswick, which is right near the army base there. And he charges a whopping $4,000 a month. And it's just it's an obscene, but there's a lot, there's a need for those people to come in uh, and to use it because there's not that much housing out there. So, you know, it depends on these little pockets in rural areas. New Brunswick is looking very well in certain areas. And yeah, you can make a very good penny. So selecting your spot is incredibly important. But you, there's still a lot of money to be made in short-term rentals. Absolutely. I, I will go Andrew's comments. A large part of my practice is actually Canadian outbound investing into the U.S., which is, they're like 52 little countries. So again, like you have to be very careful where you pick, you know, different counties, different rules, but there's a lot more variety to select from. And I am starting, as Andrew was mentioning, to get more international inquiries as well. So, you know, short-term rental can be very favorable. I'll also just make a more direct comment to what your question was, which was the government always has sort of two options if they want people to do things, the carrot or the stick, right? And so we've been talking about the stick so far this evening. To give an example of like, there are very large credits available as well as very large construction loans, which are you know, backed by CMHC. Ontario also has the regional opportunities investment. So I recently had a group do a multifamily build out near Sarnia and you know, it was about a million dollars and they got an $80,000 credit from the government for doing that. So the short answer is if you're doing what the government would like you to be doing, they're likely to reward you for it, even up to and including very large tax credits. Most of this policy changes is essentially it's right. They're trying to disincentivize certain behaviors, but they also do incentivize certain other behaviors too. So it could mean that you know, there's other strategies or other things that people are going to get involved in. And I actually have seen that a little bit in my practice. I've seen not a cascade, but sort of a slow shift to people. Instead of like saying, I'm going to work by myself, do a single family, maybe do some Airbnb. I'm seeing larger groups put together bigger pools of money, try to buy small apartment buildings, maybe do build some multifamily. So I'm seeing more shifts in, in those directions because some of those things still have pretty good profits attached to them sometimes. All right. That makes sense. Thank you. I guess I, in the end, and now Spencer and Ashley, you are, you've been doing short-term rentals for how long now? About six years now, I think. Yeah. About six and a half flies. And do you have any plans to change your strategy? No, uh, I, I wouldn't say change the strategy. Obviously, when it comes to looking forward and, and where to invest next, we obviously are very bullish on towns that are pro-tourism and pro-short-term rentals. The big thing we're seeing is the primary residence crackdown, if you want to call it that. There really isn't too many creative ways to get around that. You know, it, that is what it is, but there's still a lot of municipalities that you don't need to have that as your primary to be able to purchase and own it as like a cottage or a, a short-term rental. So we're kind of looking in those areas that are more, you know, pro that than it is, you know, we're allowing it, but we're going to restrict it because like anything, things can change at any time. So we're just kind of looking at the overall macro and what brings people into the city. And if it's 
a lot of it's tourism. Again, can't say that it's for sure, but the likelihood of them just completely eliminating short-term rentals are a lot less than what I would assume than other municipalities that are making it a little bit more restrictive. Are any of you doing any short-term rentals in the States? We are, yeah. We, we, we own two just across the border in Alleghenville. Where, in New York? New York. Or? Yeah, in New York. Okay. Okay. Oh, interesting. All right. And what are the, um, are the, the regulations similar to what you see here? Are they changing? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, Alleghenville specifically um, is a very tourist city. If anyone's been there, it's a ski town. They've got, you know, two different ski hills, a golf course, um, a bunch of restaurants. So, like, most people, there's very few people that live there. Most people that visit and the money that comes in is from outside Buffalo, et cetera. So they're very pro short-term rentals. But I will say there are certain pockets of Ellicottville, for example, that is not allowed. Some of them were grandfathered in 10 years ago, but it's very clear on their you know, town's website. You can see which zoning allows it and which doesn't. And a lot of the zoning, you don't even need a license that you're just allowed to, to operate and allowed to do it because... You know, they, they know the money and the people it brings in and there isn't enough hotels to keep up. And quite frankly, they know not everyone wants to stay in a hotel. I'm not saying that's the cause for every single town in you know, New York State or across the U.S., but that's what we're seeing, at least in that area. All right. Uh, Andrew, are you strictly in Canada? You haven't gone into the States? Just through some, I don't own them outright myself, but I do have a JV partner with that's doing a few uh, short-term rentals. One is in New York and then another three out in Florida and then another two in Texas and Austin. And oh, that's all the, yeah. Because I, I know you often hear about people talking about many states. I hardly hear anyone talking about investing in New York State. I don't know why. You just, it's Ohio, it's Texas, it's... Uh, maybe Arizona, it's Nevada, Tennessee, but I hardly hear anyone talk about interest, I- investing in New York State, which is kind of weird because we're so close to New York State, right? It's like new. You know, I think that's the reason why. It's like people are, are so like, oh, it's nearby, so I might as well go even more extravagant if I'm going to go instead of you know, go to America. I might go see, the, you know, because if you're for like most people hit that point where the rental is a little bit for, farther enough, they can't really do anything if something goes wrong. You know, they'll move out to a place that makes the most bang for your buck, right? And then they end up looking more south, right? So the the distance change all seems the same after a certain amount of mileage. Right. Okay. And Christopher, with people who go to the States, I'm assuming um, that a lot of people would set up um, a corporation in the States to handle, what, whether it's, you know, long-term rentals or short-term rentals, that they would do that, right? Is that your experience? So I actually work with a law firm in the U.S. called Asset Defense Team, and we set up relatively elaborate structures, mostly designed at preventing loss in the case of litigation. See, like so far in Canada, we've mostly talked about, you know, how the government impacts what we're doing. In the U.S., uh, oftentimes your problem is your neighbor in the sense that, you know, it's, I believe, still the most lawsuits per capita of any country in the world. So a lot of what goes into that is like a relatively elaborate setup where we have maybe a USC court that invests into a USLP, which then in turn owns a USL LLC. And then we have another C court, which acts as a 1% general partner. So to buy a property, usually we're setting up to like three, four corporate or entities, I should say, because that's what it takes to keep you protected. 
there's a lot of ways to do that wrong. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do it right. Sierra, Canada and the U.S. do have a very strong tax treaty. Canada has also taken a few additional steps to make that less lucrative for Canadians uh, using what's known as the FAPI regime for accrual property income. And so like if a Canadian is making passive income in countries other than Canada, we have a relatively oppressive tax regime when it comes to that. With that said, though, just like everything we've talked about today, there's, you know, strategies you can implement to to mitigate some of those things. But yeah, that's that the corporate structure in the U.S., I would say, is my biggest piece of advice is decide what you want to do, where you want to operate for and just like everything, it gets cheaper by the dozen. So instead of having one, one property in Tampa and then one property in New York and one property in Vegas, people tend to pick sort of a favorite fishing spot, if you will, and do a few more things to get some better bang for their buck in terms of setting up their entities and so on. And those entities are set up at the state level, correct? Usually. So the U.S., most things of that nature are governed at the state level. So like if you had a property in Florida, you would probably have a Florida LLC, perhaps a Florida LP. At the top sort of U.S. holding company level, that's sometimes we have some differences there. You can kind of jurisdiction shop a little bit and pick which one is the best one for privacy and for regulations and for fees and so on. And to give you an example, like Wyoming is a popular one just because they have low, low costs of being registered. A lot of additional privacy to you, not necessarily needing to disclose who the owners are and things like that. So, I mean, depending on what your purpose is, there's, there's something there for everybody. And I'll, we'll also uh, make a point about your New York City or New York State point there was that. Again, going back 10 years, Canadians investing in the U.S. wasn't really a thing because our markets were doing great and interest rates were low. So people's thinking was, why would I buy something 100 miles away when I can buy something two miles away? And then I can see it, I can touch it, I can drive by it on my phone from work and so on. And then as our rates crept up, that's the cost of capital in Canada is actually one of the main reasons for people perhaps looking outside the borders. Everything else we talked about aside, landlord tenant issues and all this kind of stuff. Some people's point is like, I just can't afford it, right? Like, I just, I want to get into the market, right? And so I knew a guy, for instance, who lived and worked downtown Bay and Bloor. Good salary. Couldn't afford a home down there. He owned four houses in Georgia and still couldn't afford one in Toronto, right? So this is, this is oftentimes the reason. Um, so historically, people avoided like New York City just because it had the most expensive real estate you know, one of the most expensive real estates on the planet. Whereas like now, I would say people avoid the things immediately over the border for perhaps different reasons. It's almost like it's, they view it as too cheap, right? Or they have concerns around the the types of neighborhoods, but you can pick up houses in Niagara Falls or Buffalo quite inexpensively. Yeah. I, I yeah. Again, you have to decide where, where you want to go and do your due diligence, get your team up there and set things up so that there are no surprises on whatever jurisdiction you're in. And if it's a cross-border jurisdiction, well, then you've got get extra work. But that's just part of the price you pay to, to do what we do. All right. With that, I'm going to wrap up the formal part of our evening. Thank you, all of you. It was a really good discussion. Like Short-term rental is really a hot button these days. And as I started out by saying, it's not dead. It's just the landscape's changing. And it's also with long-term rental, like yeah. underused housing tax. I mean, 
things are changing here and in this country. Things are changing around the world. So you just got to keep up and know what you're doing and get the right people to to work with you. So Christopher, Andrew, Spencer, and Ashley, thank you so very much. Your your wisdom is muchly appreciated. That's great. So Catherine, you want to come back and join us? I am. Thank you very much. We've got some great questions that have come in. And so I'm just going to go through them. Some of them, which is one of the reasons why we like to ask the questions at the end, because they're actually answered during the main main frame of everything. So Catherine O'Neill, you had a question with regard to if I'm in Southern Ontario and doing Airbnb arbitrage, which you have a lease from a corporation who is the owner and you are the Airbnb host for a whole property, how does this affect me? Pretty sure that we did cover that from a number of different angles. If you do have another question off of that, please pop that in the bottom of the chat. We'll see if we can get some further clarification for you. So we have a question from Brian. Spencer Nashley, do you own or manage any STRs in Toronto? If so, do you find Toronto more onerous to deal with than most other jurisdictions? So we don't currently manage or own anything in Toronto. It definitely is more onerous to operate there, but not saying that it's not a, a good opportunity. We are actually currently looking to expand our management portfolio down that way. Um, again, not 100% familiar on all the restrictions just because they change so much. I know they do limit how many nights you can rent. And I do believe it's a primary residence, just like a lot of the major big cities are, are moving towards. There might be a few other things I'm missing here, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's still doable, still profitable if you invest right. But just make sure you do your due diligence on that one. And I think what we're finding too overall is most areas are still profitable. It's just what types of properties now are profitable. Like 10 years ago, any short-term rental was probably a profitable rental. Whereas now it, it looks like a student house. It, it's not looking up to par. It's likely not going to be profitable anymore. I think all this has really just like raised the bar for hosts and for the standard of what people are willing to paid for a house or a unit or an apartment. So everyone who set up their unit 10 years ago is now like, oh, wow, bookings are down. Maybe you should look at what it looks like uh, versus like your competition. There's so much more that goes into the algorithm now and people are kind of ignoring it and just wondering why they're not making any money anymore. Good points. Really good points. Thank you. Uh, next question from Arena for you, Andrew. Can you please go into more detail on your comment about how midterm property should look different from short term? So there's a lot of crossover with midterm and short term. So mainly speaking, one of those things is the contract looks similar to the short term rental contracts that you'll have, but also there's more say rules when it comes to fire safety, et cetera. They have to be posted in front of the doors, et cetera. So your midterm contract is the biggest piece that's differentiating from a uh, short term. I was mainly making that comments from the difference between midterm and long-term tenancies and long-term goals. Um, a short-term rental like an Airbnb can look exactly the same as a long-term rental in the sense of scheme of how it looks and you know, drapes and couches, et cetera, et cetera. But a midterm rental must look like a, like a bed and breakfast in Airbnb. I know a couple of investors that won't do a midterm rental without having a front desk. 
because that's how they want to handle it. And because and, and, the police have to deal with certain things and the legislature has to deal with certain things. So it's mainly the uh, the optics of what it looks like. Same thing like trademark defense. If it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. If you're operating in the, the similar, it's the same thing. If your property doesn't look like a midterm rental or doesn't look like a hotel, then it's not one. And the, the exemptions of the RTA are very, let's say, ambiguous. You're looking at Section 5A of the Residential Tenancies Act. And if you see it, uh, midterm rentals fall under that specific uh, section. And it's only about four sentences long. And the entire midterm rental contract is based upon those four sentences. So it doesn't really specify what it's supposed to look like. But adjudicators have all said, you know, if it looks like a midterm rental, it is a midterm rental. So that's the most important thing. It's not just the contract. It's how the property actually looks like. Okay, that's fair enough. And that's important. I know that some of the other companies, there are a lot of people who are moving into more of the midterm rentals and they're very specific. I know when I've spoken to a few of them, they're very specific on how they're set up and exactly what you're saying on how they look. So that's really interesting. So thank you. So we have Wendy, how to keep up with the new rules to know what is going on in your area. And she's joining us tonight from Frontenac. Do you want to, that's with the rules and stuff. So Andrew, do you want to take that as legal? Yeah, my apologies. I was just looking for the question here. It said 732. Oh, oh. Uh, how do we keep up with new rules to know in our area? I'm in Frontenac. Oh, for short-term rentals. Oh, okay. There's quite a few. Mainly speaking, it's going to be the municipality's bylaw website, depending on which one it is. Toronto's is the hardest one to find anything because it's just the largest. But the smaller ones are pretty easy. Hamilton's is very easy. Benbrook, St. Catharines, et cetera. Just look at the city bylaw. And worst case scenario, just call the bylaw office or city planning office, and they'll give you all the information. Like That's the easiest way. I don't even bother looking online anymore. I just pick up the phone and give them a call. And that's the best way of doing it. And then if you're really in a pinch and dealing with a bylaw in Hamilton, just go to City Hall. There are insights. That's what you have to do. <laughs> because sometimes they don't answer the phone, right? <laughs> Same with the courthouses. They just won't give you information. So you have to physically go down there. And I've never had an issue because my office is nearby, but you can walk there. It's on the second floor in Hamilton and they'll give you the information that you need and you can walk off. And that's, that is with all municipalities. Physically going there is probably your best bet. But if you can't do that, calling them is just as good. Yeah, that's I'm a good point, say, actually. That, that's a really good advice. Like, pick up the phone and call them, especially the smaller places. That, and, and Or go in, drive in and say, hey, I need some questions answered. And, and it, A, it gives you some credibility, too, as you're sort of navigating through the process. And if you run into issues later, you always, if you create those relationships, right? And we've talked about that before on some of the, of the webinars we've had here. But how important it is to create relationships with people in City Hall so that if you run into an issue, you can go to them and talk to them because it will help in the long run, right? Oh, yeah. In Welland, uh, I'm using that specifically. In Welland, the city bylaw officer is also the sheriff. So when I do a landlord temporary wow. eviction, it's the same guy that shows up. <laughs> and it's funny enough, the court clerk at the courthouse at Welland is the wife of the sheriff and the daughter is the city municipal clerk for small claims. And then the son is the, he does groundskeeping. 
So the entire family just runs the entire courthouse and bylaw, et cetera, in well. It's just like four people. So it's like it's important to know these people, right? Because they'll know you, right? It's, you know, so you do want to have those relationships and, and speak with them, right? That's very important, very important. We've got a, another question here for Spencer and Ashley. I know there are some for you, Christopher, as we're going down, but I am going in order so that I don't get kind of tangled up here. Uh, Spencer and Ashley, this one is from Scott. Uh, if you are saying it's easy sailing, if you get a license, I'm curious as to how you are skirting the primary residence caveat in the regions you manage Airbnbs. I think you did touch on this, but we're going to ask it again just in case so that if somebody else needs to know this. Yeah, so primary residence, obviously for us with management, it doesn't affect us because our owners are the ones that get the license and we do not. But helping with the own, our owners is Basically, the city wants proof that it's a primary residence and a form of proof that they have been accepting is a driver's license with that license or that address on it. Yeah, I need some sort of government photo. And they just need one person to be. So what they want to do is they want to match up the driver's license with that address with the app with the name on the application and they just need one name. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be like the physical owner of the house. You don't have to be on the deed of the house. It just has to be the house that you are residing in. Oh, okay. So you can be a, a renter? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you could get you could have a lease with a renter and that renter's name would be on the application and would also need to show proof of residence, which typically has been a driver's license. And that's in all the municipalities that we're familiar with. Like not to say that there might be some out there that have different rules, but those are the ones that, you know, we're we're familiar with and that we've seen. Okay. Excellent. So Charbel is just making a statement here. <clears throat> wow. Prince Edward County is not allowing any more short-term rentals at all. Wow. And there's an awful lot of really great areas in Prince Edward County. That's quite interesting. Uh, just there are uh, some municipalities that oh. will do that. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, there are know. some municipalities that will do that. Another one is, I believe, Fort Erie. Yeah, Crystal Beach. Yeah, that area, they just cap it. So I forget how many they capped it out. It was like 250 licenses. And basically they've said that once they start to decrease, they'll open it up until they hit 250 again. It's just a classic example of you have to know these rules and you have to know this before you buy. Because each municipality is different. Like you just don't want to go vote. Prince Center County would be an amazing place for short-term rental buy and then look into the bylaws. It's part of the process of buying now. Caledonia is also considered doing that as well. I was just dealing with that a few days ago when I saw that pop up. So it's, it's very important to, to know the laws that are in the area. Wow. So Andrew, here's another question for you. And there are questions for you, Christopher. So hang tight here. Um, so Andrew, two midterm contract questions. What are the key points that should be in the contract? So a little bit of a deviation from our short-term rental focus here, but still important. Oh, that's a, I could sit and talk about that for hours. Just as a quick response. Yeah, there's quite a few things. Well, each contract is different, right? It comes down to the property and where it is, and the area, and the bylaw, et cetera, et cetera. So it is very, there's a lot of acknowledgements regarding Section 5A, the Residential Tenancies Act. And there's a lot of, it's just a very difficult question to answer because it's very specific to each property. So it's uh, it's not a contract, more of an agreement. 
for the and some people have characterized it differently. Some people call them stay agreements. Some people pay occupancy agreements or midterm rental agreement, etc. So it can change in Divvipa per property and per specific city. So it's very different. And uh, I work with a lawyer by the name of Sean Quigg, and he works with our office for those contracts as well. Sean's awesome. Yeah, really great guy. Okay, so Jillian is asking another question for you, Andrew. Can you draw up a contract for doing STR and MTR arbitrage? The goal here is to not use the Ontario standard lease. If this means using a commercial lease, then do you have such? If it is a commercial lease, then does the landlord have to charge HST to the commercial tenant? I think you've already answered most of that question. But... Yeah, well, yeah, you can't use an OSL, so the Ontario standard lease for those contracts. You, like, you shouldn't use them. Um, because that'll actually cause you an issue. Um, so I yeah, well, the quick answer is I don't draft those contracts anymore. So I, I would just refer you to my colleague Mr. Quick. I don't I don't draft them anymore. Okay. So then Christopher, if it is a commercial lease, then does the landlord have to charge HST the, to the commercial tenant? Uh, so I'll answer that a couple of different ways by explaining some HST stuff on that. So Interestingly, the definition of short-term and long-term passive and active definitions are different for income tax than they are for HST. So only take what I'm going to say for HST purposes. So HST, if you're more than 30 days and you're registered, you, have, you don't have to charge it. If it's less than 30 days, you do have to charge it. So that's what the law says. So here's what Airbnb says. We don't want to be on the hook for anybody's HST. Charge it from the first dollar. So anything that's under 30 days, whether you're registered or they're going to make you charge HST. Part of the reason is that they don't want to have to keep track of watching people's income and seeing should they have, should they not have, and so on. So if you provide them an HST number, they'll do a payout to you. And then you're responsible for remitting. If you don't do anything either way, they're just going to charge it and send it in on your behalf. So the commercial lease question, it doesn't really matter how the lease is drawn up. CRA just puts a, a line in the sand that if you, just like any other agency registrant, you're obligated to register if you have more than 30,000 a year of sales. So if you're going to go over that amount, the question is if you're long term, then no. If you're short term, then yes. And for HSC purposes, uh, short term is less than 30 days. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, or, but or call your accountant. That's option C. <laughs> That's what I would be doing. That's why we have accountants like you on our professional yeah. team. Probably the best idea. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I'm answering because you asked and we're all here to learn. But if you're really not sure, you call someone else. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's, and you know what? I always go by also by the, the keep a super simple method. And that's uh, directly to the expert because we're not, right? So Dory is asking, is the, I, I believe this one is for you, Spencer and Ashley. Uh, is the $200 to $400 a month insurance also for principal residents that has an STR suite, or is it for an entire home that is used for STR? I should go with saying, like, we, we have properties that we pay slightly under $200 a month. That was probably the average that we see. It really varies and depends on, you know, the quotes that you do get. I, I know as soon as you are operating a short-term rental and taking on more liability, and depending on how much coverage you need that is going to affect the price. A lot of municipalities want to be additionally insured as well, um, which can also 
um, change your, your premium as in that regards. So it really depends on where you're operating um, and what type of coverage you're looking at. That's going to change the price. And what we're quoting is for an entire dwelling used as a short-term rental, we only really manage whole homes. So, and then we only own whole homes that are used as a short-term rental. So my assumption is that the square footage that you need covered is less. Maybe the cost would also be less, but I would ask your insurance agent. Of course. And that's what they're there. There are, certain, there are specific companies that are for that. I know that when I had my short-term rental, it, it, we lived here on site with it, but had an entire policy for it as we were here. But also with the taxes and everything else, I was flagged as having a short-term rental and in hospitality with the municipality and with my taxes. So that when I was had taken it off and we had, shall I say, moved back upstairs. So we were no longer, we closed the bed and breakfast. I mean, it was almost, it was a nightmare for me to get that off in order for the taxes and for everything else to be, to be done. Once I did it, it was fine. But again, it's the municipalities that don't have their ducks in a row quite yet. So, which was fine. Um, okay, Christopher, here's another question for you. Uh, and it's from Carolina. Um, very good points about the credits from municipalities. Do you happen to know which municipalities have credits to, uh, to do second units? So I'll drop a link in the chat here for everybody. So this one is administrated regionally, and sometimes they'll mention specifically the cities, if there's a city that's outside the county. But basically, if you were to look at a map, the simple answer is like Hamilton, Niagara, GTA, Kitchener, Waterloo is no. Everywhere else other than Ottawa is a yes, which so that's for the specifically for like the multifamily adding units and so on. So if that is something you're interested in doing, give that page a read. You can factor that into like if you're putting a funding package together to like do a multi-unit and so on. The other one was that I was mentioning was the CMHC funding initiative. You can take it or leave it this one, but basically it's if you want to do like more, more housing, like if you're going to build rentals, they'll give you a sweetheart deal on relatively large loans uh, over relatively long payment terms. If you wanted to go out and build some multi-unit, like that's going to be, and I mean, of course, some of their hope is that some of them might turn into like cooperative or geared to income. Some I can picture that happening, but it's an interesting read. It's interesting to know about. So, and I mean, that's a short way of saying, you know, other than all the red tape, who you really want to be is a home builder, right? You know, my neighbor actually in the plaza here is a home builder and they only ever have one problem is they can't build them fast enough. That's, you know, they release a phase of a hundred houses. They're sold out in less than 24 hours. So wow, nice to have a product that's flying off the shelves like that. Now that doesn't that's necessarily mean they make money. It's a hard place to get things up money, but certainly no shortage of, of demand. Awesome. Excellent. That's really nice to hear too. So we've got just a few more questions here from Elise, U.S. Investing Entity Setup question. If you're able to clarify, I think I heard you say you could do entity setup in in cheapest state. Oh, yeah. uh, in they mean like a state of the U.S. In state. a state, that's what I was thinking, like Wyoming, and invest in a different state, or must you set up where you intend to buy? So the Wyoming example was if you were going to create like a holding company. Underneath your holding company, you would have some LLPs or LLCs um, to own specific properties. So typically, you would go something, if you have a U.S. hold co, maybe a C-Corp in Wyoming, then it's going to own limited partnerships 
which are going to then own LLCs. Typically, you would put your LLC in the state in which you're operating. Doing it the other way around can inject some what I will call U.S. interstate quantum weirdness because let's say you have an LLC registered in Florida and it owns a property in Texas. You might be thinking for sure, okay, I'm in, I have a, a property in Texas. You know, I'm going to be going to court in Texas with my tenant, whereas they may throw up other red flags asking for the court case to either be heard in Florida or to try to disbar that out-of-state entity from having access to the Texas court system. So you can accidentally end up under legislations you didn't intend to be and get unintended outcomes of cases that you maybe thought were you were under a certain set of rules or you could do certain things. So like the U.S. is like 52 little countries. You, you have to pay very close attention to not to make sure that you understand that you're operating under the set of laws that you think you're in. Um, Canada is actually becoming more like this since we've been talking more about municipalities and stuff too. A lot of things that we would handle, let's say at the federal level here or handled at the state level or even the county level, things can vary a lot county to county. You know, you might be, you might have a very different set of landlord tenant rules, you know, across the street if you happen to be on a county line. So you can't just like ask your buddies, you know, oh, well, my buddy down the street did it this way. So I'm going to do the same thing. Don't absolutely don't do that. We hope you found this episode as informative and eye-opening as we have. And don't forget, join us next week for another great episode. Customize your life and we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping all levels of real estate investors advance to the next level and help you customize your life. Be sure to tune in next week at rightclub.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you get a few seconds, please rate the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps the show get noticed by others like you, and we truly appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe.